Welcome to Unboard, Unplugged, Unscripted Board Leadership, a conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. So, Darren, uh, welcome to Unboard, unscripted, free-for-all conversation uh, about governance and experiences around the boardroom and outside the boardroom, etc. I've been delighted every time that we've had a chance uh, previously. So, uh, I know an, a little bit about you, but uh, obviously there's going to be people that would be listening to this who uh, who don't. So uh, the elevator ride, it's it's the ground floor. I hit you know four and you got a couple of minutes to say, oh, yeah, so this is what this is me. This is Darren. That sounds great. Well, thank you, Brian. And, and uh, thanks for the invite. I've, I've uh, the feelings mutual. I've enjoyed every opportunity we've had. Uh, in our brief uh, tenure together for a conversation. So just, again, quickly about me, uh, Darren Rawson. I I do live in Edmonton today. I do spend more than half my time probably in Canmore, Alberta, in the lovely mountains where I love to spend my time. Uh, Background, I'm an engineer by training, actually a computer engineer from the 80s. I thought I would work for one company my whole life until ended up as part of a transaction uh, where our business unit got sold and just sent me on this fabulous career. So while I'm an engineer by training, I would say I'm absolutely uh, a business leader. Uh, I've had the fortune of, of launching uh, a business in uh, the electric vehicle market in the 90s, which was a, a great ride in high-tech metallurgy. And from there, I was a CEO of three different private enterprises for about 17 years in vastly different markets, one uh, in distribution uh, one in construction and one in international oil and gas. So it's been a great ride. I did a career pivot a few years ago and uh, decided not to be a CEO for the rest of my life while I was still young. And uh, now I'm, uh, I'm an advisor. We have an advisory services firm in, in primarily in helping boards be high performing. And, uh, and I'm an active corporate director and chair. So talk to me about your first board experience because so you're a CEO and your your backgrounds in engineering etc and you know how how did you connect from from being an engineer to to being in a boardroom and being in being a chair yeah thank you that's a good question yeah I think back I probably asked myself that same question too how did I end up here (laughs) <laughs> you know, I started in large, large cap companies, probably like a lot of people in this call and yourself. And, uh, you know, you're working up through the layers of management. You become almost a practitioner in, in business excellence. But having the fortune to do that in two or three different companies, you started to realize, well, they're, they're, everyone's quite vastly different. And, and how they actually govern internally is quite interesting. Um, probably the biggest lens, other than doing nonprofit boards, you know, those are probably my first board experiences, but my first, say, non say as a business board was uh, with private equity and I was a CEO and part owner actively involved. And, uh, and that was a fabulous experience. Got a great lens. We, you know, killed it for several years and then had some tough years after the, uh, the financial crisis in the mid two thousands really took hold. Um, we still did quite well, but it was, a, it was a different board experience. It really got me thinking a lot about this board dynamic about the same time I had the opportunity to sit on a private board uh, for the first time as a director, I was invited to sit in on it. So it was such a fascinating lens for me to study the dynamic of a board from two seats, you know, one in the CEO seat and one in, in the director seat. So uh, and wait, about the same wait, time, yeah, were you, were you brought in, were you brought in as a director because you're an engineer? So you're one of these subject matter specialists. Sort of thing. <laughs> 
No, actually, I wish I was. But uh, no, I was brought in uh, because I'd seen a lot of movies. And I was a fairly broadly experienced business leader. So even though I had a technical background, uh, I'd actually had quite a broad business background. And as you know, you and I have talked a few times, at least I had a lens on international commerce. Very few business people actually have a lens on doing business internationally. And we were doing business in probably 20 or 30 different countries or more. So the, the the international side, just to dive into that a bit more, like like what what you what would be your takeaway from having that experience relative to just being on Canadian boards, for instance? Uh, well, that's a long story into itself, but I you know my experience internationally is uh, the world is an amazing place, and if you approach life from a position of curiosity, not of opinion, we have so much to learn. Uh, the cultures, doing business internationally, the cultures of each different country are so vastly different in terms of how businesses are done, how they make decisions, how you relate to other people. Uh, we've had staff in different countries. How do you motivate staff? The leadership style and decision-making in every country is so vastly different. That would be the, probably the big first one. The second one, though, I would say is from my experience, Canada has a long way to go. You know, the data suggests this too, that our productivity globally is, is actually quite poor, ranked in the G20. And, and I see that when I travel. Um, you know, we're quite fortunate in Canada. We have such a vast resource, uh, list of resources and assets at our disposal. Our, our balance sheet, not fiscal balance sheet, but our, our balance sheet of resources, people, arable land is amazing. And I look at countries like Korea and Japan can do with nothing. And it's quite scary, actually. Like, they really know how to compete, and we have a long way to go. What, what happens if we as a country, though, could figure it out? It's, you know, people look at it and they say their productivity, oh, they just work like stupid numbers of hours. And, 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 and I, I, you know, I was on the board of Business Development Bank of Canada, and, and that kept popping up time and again as an issue is Canada's productivity and how do we actually facilitate uh, improving that situation? Is there something there that we don't get? Uh, it isn't just simply ours, is it? No, I don't. I, uh, it's a really good point. I think it actually has very similar paradigms to business. You know, I was, I've been in, fortunate to be in Alberta during some of the boom years. And honestly, it's, it was frustrating to see some businesses. I started calling it the Alberta disadvantage. You know, people would show up and make money hand over fist, especially in Port McMurray in the boom times. And, it, you know, we didn't really have to work that hard to make that money, which is actually quite a shame. And it made us less efficient, whereas the rest of the world had to work so hard. And I think that's been Canada's uh, challenge is that it's in some respects, it's been easy. You know, dig a hole, bring out resources and sell them or grow crops and sell them. I think I read the other day the GDP of food and agriculture for the Netherlands is twice that of Canada. Yeah. Think of that. Food and agriculture, their GDP is twice that of Canada. When you, I think you're much closer to this with your prior, prior background, so you probably have a great lens on this. But, but I think it has to be because they've realized they had to add value. And so I look globally and I look at other countries, out of necessity, they've just had to work harder. So they've done things like implement robotics and productivity, and they've implemented you know lean much more aggressively than we have to. Now, and there's some of the pressures we're in Canada right now. I, I'm hoping that as a country with the resources we have, if we increase our competitiveness, that, you know, we have every opportunity to get back at that same scale. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, you're sitting in Edmonton today, you're at ground zero for, for the challenge because obviously with what's, 
you know, the, the foundation of Alberta's economy and where the world is heading. You're right in the crosshairs of a lot of the, the issues that are going to be uh, surrounding productivity and, and doing a pivot. So do you ever have a, like the internationals, have you ever had a faux pas where you actually did something? Sorry to put you on this spot. It, uh, yeah. Stumbled. Yeah. You know, I've been fortunate. I don't think I've, I've fallen on my face too much. I will tell you a fun story, though, in, in my first travel through China. It was one of those 10 city marathons. And, you know, it was every day, kind of like planes, trains and automobiles, you know, wake up in the morning, in the hotel, go on a call, maybe two, uh, you know, get on a, in a taxi, go to the train station, travel, get to the new city, check in hotel, go out for dinner you know, rinse, repeat. And that was 10 days. And it was fabulous. I was in the mid nineties and, uh, you know, China's a different country today than back then. But my colleague and I, he was a wonderful man, a PhD electrochemist. And we're, we're kind of acting pretty arrogant. Like, boy, we really got this culture down. Like we totally know China. We've got three or four words in our vocabulary. We got it. And we go, uh, probably the eighth day of the trip, we settle into the restaurant with our, our guests, which is a customer. And they pour the tea and him and I are just lost in thought. We're debriefing. We're having a great conversation. And when we're sipping our tea, noticing, boy, the mugs in this city are quite a bit bigger than the other mugs. And we pause and we look around the table and everybody else is cleaning their utensils with the hot tea. (laughs) It's meant to sanitize their plates and bowls and utensils. And we're sipping away (laughs) from the tea. So we kind of quietly put that down, cleaned our utensils. They took that tea away. They brought us best tea after so culturally we uh had to remind ourselves we don't know very much yeah <laughs> and, and and did you ever have a eureka moment or a scary moment uh where dealing internationally yeah a couple for sure um you know in the oil and gas business in particular um you know i never found a country that i didn't love by the way and i've been to some countries that aren't you know considered high in the food chain but i just i've loved people in every country uh, I did manage a business, uh, you know, when we had a huge operation in Turkey where, you know, I, I was scheduled to fly there and that military coup when, when Erdogan was almost taken out, you know, was happening and I'm talking to my staff and here I have a plane ticket in a week to go to, to Turkey. Uh, so that was a bit of a scare. Um, but the, the, probably the one that was the most influential was quite humbling. I was, again, running this business in the Middle East and we had staff and a lot of assets in uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, we had gone through, I think, a very proper, formal, really well-managed process to transition from an agent about six months ago using what we would call Western practices, what everybody on this podcast would probably believe is really great Western practices. We woke up one morning and I get this phone call and found out that in the middle of the night under the cloak of darkness that... uh, all of our staff, 15 staff, had been arrested by local police and thrown in jail. And that uh, millions of dollars of assets and equipment had been seized, thrown on flatbeds and, and drove away. And our corporate lawyers, like, you phoned right away and said, holy cow, like, what's, you know, are we in good shape? And they looked at our agreements and said, you guys are in absolutely perfect shape. Everything is fine. Well, what does that mean? Well, you're in Saudi Arabia. There's no rule of law. It's going to take us some time. And it was such a humbling moment because like a lot of Canadians, we cared intimately about our people and we're so worried about our people. And I realized at that moment that, you know, what do we normally do as a leader in a crisis? You got on a plane and go there. Well, my, my visa to go into Saudi Arabia 
was issued by this former agent that had so-called arrested all our staff and stolen all our equipment. How excited was I to go to Saudi Arabia? Um, at that moment, I don't think I've ever felt more vulnerable and exposed in my entire life. Tough moment as a leader. Yeah, I had one where, um, you know, actually I was, uh, I, people didn't tell me actually, I didn't even know, I probably don't know all the details to this day as a CEO, the insurance policy that they had on me in case of kidnapping and, and yeah. <laughs> what the deductible was. <laughs> I can imagine yeah. a meeting where they're going, well, I don't know, you know, the deductible is this much and that'll affect our <laughs> quarterly results. <laughs> so, you're, you're both a liability and an asset on the corporate yeah, balance sheet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so this, this may be a mischaracterization. So, um, but what you, the ozone advisory, my sense of it is when I was always trying to understand what you're doing is it's, it's almost like a, a jump starter of a board for boards, right? Yeah. And, 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 a, and a kind of an incubator, right? So, and you're there for a period of time, but, but you're, you actually deliberately, you help establish a board and you also deliberately exit and transition out. If I, is that, is that a way, a good way of describing it? Yeah, that's a good way. If, if you allow me a second, I'll just tell you the history. So, uh, you know, well, I've transitioned from being a CEO by my choice pretty early in my career. After 17 years, I said, do I want to do this forever? And I didn't think I did. And I was getting approached quite a bit because I was working with the university here in, uh, at Alberta on governance for private businesses. And, and people were approaching me right after saying, hey, Darren, I want to create a board. Would you be my chair? And my colleague, Mary Cameron, who you know very well as well, Brian, um, you know, I stayed in touch with her and, and she was getting the same requests. And we compared notes one day and realized in the span of six months, we had both created between the two of us, eight boards. We designed eight boards and we're chairing eight boards. And, and we laughed because we said, we can't keep saying yes. You know, and, and then as we looked at the landscape, we realized that there was a huge need. Now, I don't, I think very few organizations need a board, you know, they have, of course, a legal fiduciary board, which might just be the shareholder. But in terms of an active board, I think it is a small number. But for those that do need a board, there was just nowhere for them to go. So we just said, uh, you know, we're very busy in many ways, but why don't we create this entity called Ozone Advisory? And like you said, we only do three very simple things. We help design or redesign a private company board. Um, and we've done some for nonprofits as well, but our priority is private company boards. So we design or redesign boards. So if someone wants a board, we'll help them in that path get in and get out. Uh, we do board assessments because we, we laughed as well. We said in our entire tenure, we ever been through a really good board evaluation and we started giggling and we said, you know, maybe one or two, but it's rarely done and rarely done well. So we built a process, which I think is really good for that. And, and, you, and, and just, then we just, also do training and coaching and so forth. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was like on that point, do you, do, how important are individual assessments? It's one of my bugaboos that I, I think that if, if, if you don't actually dig underneath the surface and say, you know, uh, Brian's too quiet or Brian talks too much or, or, or uh, you yeah. know, Brian, Brian's only, he, he, he doesn't contribute unless it's this subject or, or he's abusive. Uh, you kind of dilute the impact of the evaluation because everybody kind of feels like it's, it's the other, other, if the board's not functioning well, it's not my, my, my issue. It's everybody else. Right. So do you, do you insist on that or, or is it a kind of nice to have? That's funny. I think we could have a good long debate on that alone for a half an hour probably, but uh, in discussion, we actually normally start 
by not advocating for individual assessments. Um, we think it's really important, but we find that for most boards, they haven't established the culture yet of really understanding if they're in a good zone. And so we start actually more at the higher level first. And let's say, let's as a board, let's determine if you're doing all the right practices. Are you having the right conversations? Do you have the right board culture? Let's get that understood first. And if coming out of that, you find out that one of your biggest gaps is that you have very different levels of contribution from all your directors. Then as part two, we might say, okay, good, let's now go into individual director assessments. Or if you have a mature board already with, with great directors, then we would totally advocate doing individual director assessment. But for most boards, um, and I think you would probably agree, a lot of boards have a long way to go to becoming high performing. We would say at stage one, don't do individual director assessments until you're that ready. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of torn on it um, because a lot of the, several of the assessments that I've been involved in have been ones where, oh yeah, it's because it's a publicly traded company. We have to, you know, tick this box. Um, yes. my, my, you know, one, one of the call, my colleagues said the other day, it's called spreadsheet governance, right? It's just, you're, <laughs> you're going tick, tick. And, 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 but it, these ones have last, you know, we did it three years in a row and I think each of them lasted probably all of two minutes. And yeah, there you have the same thing come up. You know, I, I wish the, way the board materials were shorter and more strategic, and we got them earlier. And it's and it's it's uh, it, it's very predictable. But yeah, you know, I, I, I had it was a it, it's a question I struggle with. I, I did a seminar uh, a month or so ago with uh, a chapter of the Canadian Manufacturers Association, and and I was asked. When do you need a board? Have you ever been, mm. you know, is there a situation, Darren, where you, you, somebody said, you know, would you help us? And you go, no, actually, you don't need a board. Yeah, we actually try to fire a lot of people early. We're not very good consultants, <laughs> by the way, at Ozone. Most, they say like, you know, good consulting businesses uh, say that, you know, the biggest uh, expense is business development. And the minute you get a client, keep them for life. And, and we usually get in and, and want to get out really fast. You know, let's help you and leave, right? Because our, our mantra is we want to do this on the corner of our desk, not necessarily as our full-time gig, and we want to make a difference in the world. Um, but, yeah, it's exactly to your, um, your point there. Um, we find that um, there is a lot of organizations that don't need a board. In fact, uh, most don't. But what we would then say is that if you're looking at your journey, if you have a growth strategy where you have aspirations, like every company probably does, probably the more important question isn't if, it's when. You know, and, and I've read your book. I love your book, by the way, Brian, and uh, I share a lot of the same philosophies. And I think in that, you know, if, if a board, if you need a board in a year, that moment that matters when you really need your board, start early because it's going to take some time to get that board up to speed, but it is a cost. And for a lot of smaller businesses, I mean, if you're a 50 person company with, you know, four, 5% growth a year, like, yeah, you probably don't need a board. Would it add value? Of course it would add value, but it comes at a big cost. And I don't think that is worth the investment. So, Yeah. Uh, as an Edmontonian, or at least where you are right now, I'm, I'm reminded of Wayne Gretzky saying, you know, I'm, I go where the puck's going to be, not where it, uh, or right, how, right. That, that famous phrase, because yeah. board, your board, you, you know, when you need a board, you can't just snap your fingers and, and, and say, okay, I, I've got it. And it's, it's properly functioning. So, but yeah. how, how do you transition out? 
Oop. How do you transition out? Oh, sorry. Yeah. How do you, how do you, you know, you're leaving. Oh, you're by the fire station, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. I was looking for the mute button. Uh, yeah. We'll just keep that out. No, no, that's yeah. Uh, but, uh, or we can leave it in cause it's unscripted. Um, yeah. How, when you leave, how do you leave? Do you pick the successor chair? Uh, I mean, and it kind of, it's, it's not just a you thing, Darren, cause I, Boards that are kind of cruising along. I've, I've had clients now uh, that where they're going like, well, do, should we have term limits? Like should oh. the chair only be there two years? And then we put the vice chair in and, and, and oh, so you're actually living, living that one all the time. How do you, how do you transition? Yeah. So with ozone, very different than as a chair. So let's answer those two questions separately. So as ozone, we see ourselves as designers not, not practitioners. So in this case, uh, if it's a private company board, our goal is to get in as quickly as possible. And we start that process actually with the shareholder. That's, that's the biggest difference from a publicly traded company versus a private company is what do you, what do the shareholders want? What's your exit strategy? What's your risk appetite? What's your intentions for this business? You know, a publicly traded company, you're not phoning the CEO of, of C and rail and saying, Hey, uh, I've got some thoughts on strategy. Can we talk? It's just not happening, right? You <laughs> well, might have so, some thoughts, but he's probably not going to listen to you. <laughs> he's not going to take your call, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, the, uh, so, you know, with Ozone, that's why, we, you know, we, it's a, when we look at it as a design process, not even a recruitment process, that should be the very, very, very last thing you do. Like, you, there's thousands, there's tens, there's hundreds of thousands of people in Canada would be really great directors. Don't go get one of those. Find the best one based on the design, right? So it's a design process. So we get in now pretty quick because once the design's done, run away. But I love your point on board succession as well. So when, if Mary or myself, uh, Mary Cameron again, have gone and we really share this philosophy that the first thing we do if we accept a chair role is we talk about our tenure and say, let's plan for our succession. We don't want to be that one that stayed way past our best before date. Now, you don't want to chase away a great chair. I think this was in your book as well. The great chair is the most critical point of having a great board. So, you know, is it five years, maybe whatever. We're not fans of term limits. I think the minute you start counting the clock on a term limit, you'll see directors will start waving out. They'll say, yeah, I've only got, you know, six more months. So, yeah, my level of contribution will wane. And then I'm gone and they checked out early. But I do believe if you don't have term limits, you have to have succession and you have to manage that succession. It needs to be intentional. Yeah. The other one that, that, that comes at me from time to time, and maybe you agree or maybe you don't, is should a should a chair remain on the board after they're not chair mm-hmm. in the past chair and 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 you know actually I had a client ask me well you know how 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 does a chair ensure their legacy and i thought you know that's actually a little weird because you know that's actually sort of almost like a stalinist approach to ensuring yeah. that, you know, the legacy of the great helmsman is, is continued, uh, et cetera, a la North Korea. Um, well, I, it's interesting. Yeah. I'll flip it back at you too. Cause don't you think in your experience, most chairs feel like it's a mantle and they feel like the New York city boardroom movie persona of a board chair is the power figure at the back of the room, pounding their fists on the table. And don't you think the best chairs are actually quite quiet and humble and don't want the accolades? Uh, I would agree with you totally. I, I, it's, it's, I, I, you know, you, you can actually think of 
who uh, the CEOs are of certain companies, but a lot of the best companies, you can't really name the chariot. So, you, you know, uh, you mentioned CN Rail. I was oh, Jean-Jacques Rouet is the CEO. I, I couldn't tell you who the chair is. I, it's, right. and, and so that probably means that chair is doing a pretty decent job because they're, they're out of the limelight. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're the, the facilitator and enabler as opposed to being front and center. I, I, you know, one of the things I've, I've used in uh, some of the things I've done on, on webinars or whatever is, is actually when Warren Buffett, the chair can be periodically needs to be there visible because the Warren Buffett, when, when he was, was uh, involved with Solomon Brothers and, and went before Congress and said, I apologize, this is not, you know, and on behalf of the 8,500 employees, and you can, you can get this on YouTube because he was publicly testifying. That's when I think there's moments for the chair to, to, to you know, stand up as an individual. But otherwise, really, um, you're right. I think the, the characteristics and the skill set. So uh, you knocked me over the other day when you said, yeah, currently I'm on uh, eight boards. <laughs> How does he do that? Is, do you ever feel overboarded? Um, uh, no, actually, I haven't yet, uh, but I am very conscious of that limit. Um, and actually, at some point, I was at 10 boards, Brian, so I've, I'm actually dismounting off a couple. Um, so eight right now and six is chair. So it, it is a lot. Um, I would say, though, the two things. First is the, you know, saying I'm on eight boards, it's not a binary decision. Being on a publicly traded company board, you know, if that's what you're, you're on publicly traded company boards, I think four, maybe three are the max. The demands right now to be on those boards are monstrous. Uh, some of the ABCs out there too, some of those public institutions, those boards are heavy, right? And uh, that's really hard to get your mind around. So, uh, but for me, the private company boards, you know, what we want to look at is how do we add value? So my number one premise is the board absolutely has to add value or don't do it. Yeah. Add value or don't do it. So, so then if you're adding value too, it's also a huge both time and cost commitment. So we want to add value without overwhelming and invading the management team. I've seen so many boards that they, they fall in this trap of being practitioners like you said, what would you call it? The spreadsheet checkbox directors? Yeah, spr spreadsheet like governance. That. Yeah. Yeah. Spreadsheet governance. I love that. I might steal that, Brian. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I see a lot of boards. That's an attribution to, and, yeah, to somebody yeah. else. <laughs> and they're smothering, they're smothering the organization. So, you know, in my case, like we would have four to five board meetings a year for a private company board quarterly, maybe a strategic meeting. I've got different perspectives on that too. I think that's done wrong. And then, um, you know, as a chair, as and you're probably the same way, I, I touch every CEO a little different. Sometimes we touch base every two weeks for coffee. Sometimes it's once a month. There's definitely more work as a chair. But I, I could not do that if I had another full-time job. That's for sure. Now, when you're on eight or 10, it, do, you, do you develop some generic skills? Almost like, uh, you know, I work for Pricewaterhouse and I do audits. So I, I actually, here's my shtick that I've got a, a kind of the Darren template. Okay. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so, it's, you know, uh, it, yeah, it sounds like spreadsheet governance, Brian. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I would say, 
I, I would have practices that are similar and philosophies that are similar, but definitely not processes that are similar. I think every organization, you know, the absolute implementation of our governance practices is vastly different because every organization is at a different stage of its journey, different industry, different dynamic. But some of the practices and philosophies are for sure. Like you've heard me say this, I, I do believe that that high-performing boards spend 75% of their board time looking forward, not backward. Most yeah. boards that we get experience with are in the business of oversight, almost like we're, like you said, the spreadsheet governance, checking our boxes. We think our job is to show up, ask a bunch of questions and tell management, hey, you're doing a good job. And, and I think that's just so wrong. And, uh, you know, the board's role in strategy is a fabulous conversation. We've had some great talks about that. It's just very different. But if good boards are spending 75% of the time forward-looking, how do we get there? So, uh, so those are some of the philosophies that I keep. I wouldn't say I keep the, um, any procedures identical board-to-board. Okay, yeah. And I'm just trying to think here. The strategic element to it, though, you've touched on that. Yes. Uh, and it is so important. And, and you, and you, I, I'm, I was just looking at the clock for a second because you said, well, we could go for half an hour on this. Can you yeah. boil it down? Just give, give it, give a taste. Yep. Here's, here's the appetizer. Yeah. Sure. I'll, I'll give you one that you've heard. And I've, I've got a new theory. I'm, I've been uh, someone exposed to me. I'll share with you in a second. The first is I, I do believe that uh, for most private businesses, that strategy is vastly misunderstood. And I, I believe it should be able to be boiled down into one line. For example, can you state the strategy of your enterprise in one line, yes or no? And I would say most enterprises fail that. They think it's their vision or mission, which is not strategy. They think it's their budget or business plan. That's not strategy. It gets to the root of how do we compete, win, and achieve our goals? And that alone can be a great board conversation, right? My second thing I like to think about is there's a difference between strategic thinking and strategic planning. I think the management team largely lives in the world of strategic planning. Here's how we're going to allocate resources to make it happen. The boardroom should be asking the questions of, of why and what, what business are we in and why, how are we going to compete and win and how are we going to achieve our goals? So getting board conversations around that and talking about strategy at every meeting is very valuable. There's another really interesting one I wanted to share though quickly, Brian, is that um, there's, there's a difference in different um, data points. So most boards look in operation metrics, which are results last month, right? Uh, what's our what's our safety record? What's our productivity rates, et cetera? And and most a lot of boards fall in that trap of just looking at operating data. You know, good boards now are forward looking. They're looking at trends and they're looking at forecasts. So that's forward looking conversations. Really interesting thing I've heard lately is what are the signals that are out there in the world? So after trends is signals. So your operating data is monthly. You know, what's the most recent result? Your trends and forecasts often are a year, and signals are probably in decades. So a good example is what are some of the signals? Well, there's declining trust in the world scale of, of major institutions. There's lack of faith in business, lack of faith in government, lack of faith in, you know, in our ABCs and, and uh, NGOs around the world. Like, and, and people's lack of confidence comes on social media. That's a trend. Uh, there's a movement to metropolitan uh, centers across the world, urbanization. Those are interesting signals. So as a board, why don't we start talking about some of these signals and what does this mean to us? Your Wayne Gretzky analogy. Let's go where the, the puck's going to be, not where it is. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think what you've hit on something I think is super important because thinking in decades is often really tough in a boardroom because people say, well, you know, 
uh, look at the stock prices down or this or that, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the long run, we're all dead uh, cliche thing. And, and I, I actually think some of the most profound things that I actually ponder are things like demographics. You know, there was uh, uh, David Foote. I I think that's the guy's name. He wrote the the Pagan, uh, the Pagan, the Python book, probably about 30 years ago. But he had this law of demographics that one thing about demographics, one year from now, we will all be one year older. So there's these profound trends. And and you look at what's happening now with labor shortages. I I was actually at a charity event the other day and there's a guy in the hospitality business. I said, what's your biggest challenge right now with COVID and everything? He said, getting people. We just have a real tough time uh, recruiting and retaining people. And, And I just sort of, I had this neuron go off like, you know, this has been an issue for a long time, training and development of your own existing staff critically important because this isn't going away. This demographic issue that we're dealing with is probably going to be compounded. Uh, and, and so the, the way that we actually engage and recruit and, and, uh, and, and deal and create culture is probably one of the most profound things, but it's a 10, 20 year thing. It's not, you know, gee, uh, you know, what, how are we going to deal with even COVID? It, you know, that yeah. that in the grand scheme of thing might be with history might be seen as, oh, yeah, that was that two or three year event. Like like we talk about the financial crisis in 2008. Yeah, a good example or metaphor in that, Brian, if I could, because uh, you triggered it is uh, Mercer did a study. I think it was in the, about 20 years ago and they were looking at risk and they said 60 percent of the largest declines in shareholder value over a five year period were due to strategic risks. And 30% were due to operating risks and 10% were due to financing risks. And yet most risk assessments in boards, you get this beautiful little risk matrix. This goes back to spreadsheet governance. And we just say, hey, we've looked at it. But most of those yeah. risks are financial and operating. Businesses fail because of poor strategy. Or at least yeah. they destroy shareholder value because of poor strategy. So again, to me, that's where we should be spending our board time. And like you said, decades. Like, you know, the oil and gas, you mentioned Alberta. Boy, we better be thinking right now what's coming after oil. It's going to be around for 20 years, but not 50. Yep. Got my heat map tick. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, just just uh, in terms of sort of closing off uh, the conversation here, uh, I was actually contemplating, you know, given your experience and, and, and what you do, um, sort of three things. But if you have one piece of advice – for a new CEO working for a board, one piece of advice for a new director going on a board, and one piece of advice for a new chair. Uh, and and uh, I, I'm catching you off guard because this is un- mm-hmm. unplugged and unscripted. So your your gut, you, somebody says, you know, I just became CEO. I'm working for a board, Darren. Um, you, what, what should I do as a CEO to make sure that I engage with my board properly? No, this is really good. I got me thinking, which I love that. Thank you for this gift. Um, my comment for a CEO would be, uh, I used to think that my board was a necessary cost of doing business. I thought the ideal board meeting is that uh, we started on time, finished early, and I had answers to every questions the board asked, and I can get them out of my hair and get on with my real job. And I realized in hindsight, that was such a missed opportunity. So for a new CEO, embrace your board 
treat it as an asset. It does take work. It won't happen overnight. Invest in your board and, and be willing to have those tough conversations, but you got to invest in your chair. So that's my first comment for CEO. So I have um, to, inter- I have to interject with a piece of humor, which you've probably heard before, sure but as a C as a CEO for 17 years myself, I don't, is that like, the seven year itch, the 17 year, yeah. <laughs> but we used to have crisis, all that stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, we used to call it, you know, the seagulls, right. They, they fly in, uh, they eat your lunch, they shit all over everything and then they fly out. <laughs> that's the, that's, that was the board. Uh, yeah. and, uh, so a new, a new director, I'm going to, uh, Darren, I'm joining a board and um, this is the first time a director. What, what, what advice can you give me? So I, I, for a director, I think of my first experience too, I really thought I was on the board to provide opinions and that is just so wrong. So for as a new director, uh, your job is, I think, to be curious. It's an amazing business. They're doing interesting things. So go, just go in and, and be curious and ask questions and, and don't assume everything's perfect, but don't assume everything's bad either. Uh, but go in and just ask questions. And um, there was a really good parallel I, I heard recently um, and so this will go to right to my best, my recommendation for a chair recommendation for a chair is, you know, you are the chief facilitation officer to try to create a board, great board experience. And, and a colleague of ours put it really well once she said, what if every single question my directors ask was pure gold? What if they didn't mail in any question, you know, Hey, I see your janitorial costs are 5% high this month. I know it's not a big spend, but I'm just curious. What if there's none of those what if every single question was golden? And I thought, wow, that's really great. And then I saw another parallel and it said, well, how long is the, uh, the best question? How long is the ideal question? And it was actually in sales and business development, but I said, this totally applies to a board. And this person's premise was that the, the ideal question is five words or less. <laughs> and so as a chair, I think the best advice I give you is don't be that gavel pounding decision maker, authoritarian. What you want to do is get to the point where your board members are asking golden questions with five words or less. You know, why are we in this business? What might happen if, you know, what if we did something different? Like, you know, just really insightful question. What happens if there's a fourth or fifth wave of COVID, right? What happens if this $4 trillion of stimulus in the United States hits the market? What does that mean to us? Right. Yeah. I, I, I was going like five. That's pretty tough. And and some of those that you just asked were more than five, but I, uh, but yeah, brevity is, is, is absolutely that old saying, right. You know, I would have written you well, I, a, a short, a short letter, but I didn't have the time. So, and well, if, we, we're if we weren't doing this today, that was like, if we weren't doing this today, would we start doing it? Yeah, That's, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily giving you a plug for your book, but I did write down a ton of good questions in your book. You've got some great ones in there and they, they may be a few more than five words. I don't think that's the point, but yeah, but I think as a director challenge yourself, that I think brevity matters, right? Yeah. Great quote. It's not the board's job to encourage management to be bold. It's management's job to be bold and the board's job not to discourage it. Wow. Perfect. Uh, We'll leave on that note. Darren, thank you for being on Onboard and thank you for the conversation. Delightful as always. And look forward to actually to the next time we have a chance to do that again. Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This is Onboard.